Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Bethany Carney Ombroff. Uh, she's an associate professor and a researcher at the University of Gothenburg in Sweden. Uh, we're going to talk about ecotoxicology and zoo physiology. Uh, we're going to talk about microplastics and uh, her role in understanding how they affect you know, different organisms and environments, et cetera. So, Bethany, thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, you know, now when I look at, uh, you know, someone drinking out of a water bottle or I am, I'm, I'm thinking about the plastics and where they're going and what's happening to them. But um, how did you first become aware of microplastics and what got you interested? So my, my background is in, uh, in fish physiology, so how fish or their bodies work. Uh, my undergraduate degree was in marine biology, and I sort of focused more into fish in my master's where I studied a disease called M74 in salmon, and there are connections between that disease and exposure to pollutants. So I started studying pollution and how it can affect fish mostly. And even during my undergrad work, I did some, I had some research experiences looking at things like metals and pHs from oils. So I've always kind of like drifted towards pollution and then uh, went from there into other kinds of pollutants, new emerging pollutants like microplastics in that category. And and was applying for grants and got some funding. And that was about, it was about eight or nine years ago, I started working with microplastics and I've been doing it since. So, with, okay, within the world of uh, microplastics, what is your research about? What are, you, are you still focusing on how certain fish are affected or what's the niche that you're looking at? So, yeah, I, w- I would say, I would describe my research as having two main tracks. One of them is definitely fish. And I'm looking at what happens to a fish when it's exposed to microplastics and the chemicals that might be in those materials, if it's affecting their their gut physiology, if they're eating the plastics, or if it's affecting their detoxification systems, if we can see changes in their in their livers and their blood parameters, trying to look at how the, the particles or the chemicals inherent to them might be affecting the health of the fish. So that's one track. And on the other hand, I'm looking at the release of plastics into the environment, where they're coming from, where they're going a little bit how they're moving through food chains. And on on that leg, when I'm standing over there, I've started working more with other kinds of researchers, interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary work. So people with other fields of expertise and not natural scientists, social scientists, people working with political questions, people working with economic systems and trying to find um, how we can work with plastic problems. So it's sort of two paths. One of them is really nerdy natural science. And the other one is is much more social and broader. And in, in those circles, I'm I'm the oddball out. I'm the natural scientist in a group of a lot of other people with different kinds of expertise. So uh, I guess talking about the uh, what you call the nerdy path first, what is it in particular that you're studying about microplastics? So so I know that you've talked about microplastics a bit before on your show and, and people, your listeners, maybe you're starting to understand that it's not one thing. We use the word plastic as a sort of general catch-all term, but plastic is not one thing. Plastic is many things. The market is dominated by a number of polymers that people might recognize like polystyrene, polypropylene, polyethylene, 
polyvinyl chloride or these little triangle symbols that we see. And these are also reflected in what we find in the environment. And, and then textiles, clothing, a lot of those are made out of synthetic materials. So we have like a diversity of different materials that we're working with, different kinds of polymers. And on top of that, there's a lot of chemicals. So I think a new report came out earlier this year looking at, at a research group in China, looking at the chemicals that we have registered for production and sale on the global market. And that number was 350,000. So there's a lot of chemicals out there. Um, we did a study, I did a study together with some colleagues of mine looking at what kinds of chemicals we might probably find in plastic packaging materials based on available information. And it could confirm that there's probably about a thousand. And a number of those are evidently toxic based on available toxicity data through different um, different groups that are publishing this kind of work and through different governmental platforms that are collecting this data, like like REACH in Europe or the EPA in the United States. So we know that why there's a lot of so chemicals. Many, um, yeah, why, why is that? Is that because, um, you know, it's funny, when I, I think a lot of people think this, if a plastic bottle is made of, uh, you know, a certain polymer, you just assume that it's only made of that and nothing else. Is it during yeah. the manufacturing process that there's a lot of additive and plasticizers and things like that that uh, make up these thousands of chemicals? Or is it that the process of, you know, polymerization and making of certain plastics just makes tons of byproducts? They yeah, so plastic? I, would, I would say both. The additives, we have a better idea of what they are because obviously people are adding them. And these are the things like uh, like pigments, UV stabilizers, plasticizers, these softeners, um, fl flame retardants, and so on. So there's a list of chemicals there. And those, we have a pretty good idea of what they are. Uh, and when I say we, I mean we as a society. Me as a scientist or definitely the individual consumer don't know what they are because that information is not really made available to us. But the producers know what they're putting into their products, right? But also during the polymer production, there are as you said, byproducts that might be forming or maybe some degradation products and those non-intentionally added substances are something that we don't have as a, a good idea of what they might be. So that's a, a little bit more of a black box there. Some of them we're aware of and, and others maybe not. And when I, and I, and I want to say this too, like I like to talk about chemicals. I, I think they're interesting and there's a lot of work to be done there. And when I use that word, I, I'm talking about synthetic materials. So things that we are producing. They're, people will argue, oh, apples and strawberries are made out of chemicals. And yeah, that's that's fair enough, but I'm talking about synthetic chemicals. And some of those maybe will degrade and the ones that are persistent are the ones that we're going to be finding in the environment. Mm. Um, so in what tech, in what context are you studying these, uh, you know, the, the extra chemicals or the, the chemicals that are inside uh, various plastics? Is it like when, when you, well, I guess how they interact with the environment is what I would say. So under what conditions? Uh, How do we do the extra chemicals? Yeah. It, it, okay. So in a I don't know a plastic bottle or some piece of plastic. Under what conditions do these uh, extra chemicals or like let's say the most toxic ones uh, leach out and cause a problem? Are they pretty well contained within the material, or once you get to the microplastic stage, have a lot of the additives or extras uh, already come out of it, or are they still mm -hmm. contained within the plastic? I think so. I think. There have been some studies done on this, looking at like leaching rates of plastics. And obviously, as the particles get smaller and smaller, the surface area to volume is increasing. So there'd be a, a greater uh, leaching rate. But most of the microplastics you might find in the environment have likely come into equilibrium with the surrounding water or soil. So additives that might have been in there to begin with will likely have leached out, while other chemicals that are in the environment 
will bind to the plastics. So what we have in a microplastic in the environment does not necessarily look like what you'll have in a consumer product. They can be a, a very different, actually. Oh, yeah. What does that look like? Um, if you take, let's say, a plastic bottle and you cut it up into small pieces and then test it, how different will it be from you know a fragmented plastic bottle that's in millions of pieces and has been out in the environment for a bit of time? Uh, do the leaching rates seem to deplete the bad stuff quick, or is it it can linger on for many years? I think what, I mean a plastic water bottle doesn't contain that many additives because it's a food contact material and they're more highly regulated than other types of plastics. First off, but yeah, I think when if, when you get to the microplastic stage, the chemical profile will be quite different than the product itself, and that can take weeks to months. I think in some cases maybe a bit longer, but I think the process is is fairly rapid. And again, these processes are all regulated by uh, temperature, by salinity, pH, by microbes on the surface of the plastic. So there are a lot of different factors that are regulating how the chemicals are moving. And that's one thing that a lot of us working with microplastics have been interested in, like how do, how do the chemicals leach out and what binds on? And then and then what happens to the chemicals once the organism comes into contact with this microplastic? So hmm. there are a few groups collecting microplastics from the field. And I'm not a, an analytical chemist myself, so I don't do this kind of work. But they'll take the plastics from the field or even place out plastics so they know exactly how long they've been out there, bring them back in and do extractions and then measure the chemical profile. And, and when you're doing these sorts of uh, analyses, you, there, you can use a targeted analysis where you know what you're looking for or sort of go broader in a non-targeted analysis and look for more what you might find out there. But a lot of what people are finding in them are these, uh, these persistent chemicals that, that have been around for a long time that degrade slowly. So it's things like dioxins and PAHs, some of the pesticides, some metals can also bind to plastics. And this is the sort of chemicals that we also know can be uh, toxic that can have negative health impacts. So these are the kinds of chemicals you'll find on the Stockholm Convention, things that have been banned for use uh, through global initiatives, but that are still in the environment. Well, okay. So, uh, you know, again, as a, as a lay person, I just think of like plastic bottles. So what are some of the, um, the plastic items that are really prevalent in the environment and what are they? Which are the real bad ones that you've tested or seen? So if we talk about what we're finding in the environment, we can, we can look at this in different ways. One, one way to look at it is maybe what you're finding in beach surveys. And throughout Europe, there are different campaigns to do monitoring on beaches to try to identify what kinds of products are there. And over the years, that has shifted more and more towards plastic. In the past, it's been maybe wood, glass, metal, things like this. But in more recent years, it's like 80, 90% plastic that we're finding on the beaches. So it's really dominating the kind of waste that we have there. And then, and then there are registers documenting what kinds of materials they are. And what is seen there is a lot of things like single-use plastics, packaging materials, lightweight plastics. And this makes sense because these are materials that we're using a lot of that are escaping from our waste management systems that are also low in density. So they float and they can get washed up on beaches. And, and the beaches that they're looking at usually are in proximity to human populations. So you're going to find these kinds of materials. So you can look at it in that way. Like what kinds of products is it? Like water bottles, food packaging. Um, cotton earbuds with plastic stems, the, all these sorts of things. And the European Union has actually decided to start banning some of these materials exactly for this reason. They're, they're low-hanging fruit. They're things that we can easily survive in society without. We can, uh, in some cases, replace them with other materials. So that's one way. And the other way to look at it is to go to the microplastics. And when you're doing that, you won't necessarily know what products it was or where it came from or the source of the microplastic. You can't really identify that once the plastic is this small. 
what you can do is say what kind of polymer it is. So you might be able you to say like, what, yeah. wait, what, what can't you identify once it's too small? You can't identify what the original product was. So I can't, oh, I can't, I you couldn't, okay. so I can find like a, a PET, which is what a water bottle is likely made of. But if I find a PET microplastic, I can't say that that came from a water bottle. So I can't make that connection, but I can say that it's PET. Are you following? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I gotcha. I gotcha. And I guess if there's any branding on the product, that's long gone too. Mm. Yeah. And yeah. You won't see that in, in the microplastic phase. There are some brand audits that have been done on beach surveys where people have gone out and collected and identified like the, the companies that are producing the products that are, that we're finding on the beaches. And those are. Oh, okay. Anything so then, interesting from there? I mean, you could probably guess a couple of the top 10. I don't know if I'm allowed to name names on your show, but they're there. They, this is, this is publicly available information. These surveys are, are published and out there and it's uh, like mass producers, like multinational global organizations that are making a lot of products that they're not um, collecting back again. They're ending up in the environment. Well, um, any, well, I guess, you know, if we get into the legal issues, the, uh, the liability, et cetera, you know, that's a whole other area that to me is not as exciting as the, uh, the chemical and environmental side. Mm-hmm. Um, what uh, I've heard of also, so there's microplastics and I've heard of nanoplastics. Um, yeah. So nanoplastics are smaller. This is right, a, know, a definition. Yeah. yeah. And, and I, would, I would like to say that the scientific community was a bit generous i guess is a word i could use in terminology towards the beginning when they when they branded the word microplastics because at that stage when we first started talking about these things this the upper size limit was set to five millimeters which is not micro it's milli right and that was done i think in part to include nurdles which are our pre-production plastics these small little round plastics if you've seen pictures of them when they they first started a nurdle. So they first started turning up on beaches and in bird stomachs and in the surface waters of the ocean already in the 1960s, late 1950s, maybe even. So pretty soon after we started mass producing plastics. And in the beginning, people didn't know what they were. They called them mermaid's tears. They're uh, usually white in color, but they can be a lot of different pigmented colors and they get, they sort of age and become darker yellow or browner as they age. Are these parts of plastics like slugs that were going to be used to make products that were never yes. used, where they come from. Exactly. Oh. So these are coming from production plants. So you'll have some sort of extractive process, petrochemicals, where where you're taking the raw materials for the plastic and and producing whatever your plastic polymer is of choice, even polypropylene, polyethylene, like this. And then these are shipped to producers that will use them to make their products. And additives will be added at a later stage. So most nurdles don't contain a lot of additives, and they and they'll be moved, oh. used in a later stage to make consumer products. So this is really early on in the life cycle of a plastic material. And these are spilled at sea during storms that are lost from containers. They're also leaking out of factories where they're maybe handled sloppily. They can blow away with the wind and and be washed away with the rain. And they're found on beaches all over the world. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. But I guess they're probably some of the least harmful stuff, right? At that stage, they're they're likely not very dangerous. The the kinds of animals that ingest these would be seabirds that maybe mistake them for for eggs. So there are a lot of studies looking at the chemicals that are in these nurdles because they will bind chemicals when they're in the environment, and then uh, and then whether or not they can be act as vectors carriers releasing the chemicals into animals. And and this is something they would be a good uh, yeah those and and maybe visible small plastic pieces, you know, um, so at, at, at what point, so anything below five millimeters is considered a microplastic? Yes. 
So, so microplastic, the word itself can sometimes mean all the way down to nanometer. And something that's one nanometer is you could discuss whether or not it was still a plastic or just a molecule or or when does a, an, a polymer and oligomer stop being a plastic? I'm not really sure, to be honest. But something that's in the nanometer size is very small and it's much more relevant to a cell. So a nurdle is... is right is enormous in this discussion of what a, what a microplastic is while a nanoplastic is really really small and they can cross into cells they can come into the into the the actual cell of the organism have you or or other people in the industry um, you know cultured different uh, sized plastics to look for like you know I, I guess i call it the microbiome of the plastic you know what bacteria it attracts and they're hanging out yeah. living off of it or you know maybe feeding off of it yeah, there are there are definitely studies done on that. There are people looking at what's growing on the plastics, on the surface of the plastics in the environment, and and also that are able to use plastics as a carbon source to incorporate the energy in the plastic material into a food chain. So this is something that people are starting to look at more and more. Hmm. So um, I don't know what what part. There's a lot still I can ask you. What what part of all this um, I don't know really fascinates you that uh, you have some unanswered questions that you really want to figure out. Yeah. Okay. So that's, that's a big question because there's so many unanswered questions. We're just, we're starting to sort of understand what microplastics are doing and how they're working. I would say on the one hand, on the other hand, I would say, we really don't know what they're doing and how they're working. We're, we're still studying how they're forming and the degradation processes of plastics in the environment. So that's one, one track. Then when in the field of microplastics and impacts in organisms that eat them, we're still looking at how big of a role size plays or shape. It's a lot of the early studies of mycoplastics were done on spheres, which were smooth and round and might have a very different interaction with, a, with an epithelial tissue than a fiber or something that's sharper or that has different kinds of edges. So shape is another question we're looking at, whether or not what we're, we're seeing for effects is based on the polymer material itself or just the particle interaction that, that an organism might have an inflammatory response and mounted immune response just because it's being exposed to a particle. And then there's the chemical question. Where are the chemicals uh, coming from? Where are they going? What kinds of effects are they having? Are they released from the plastics once they get into the gut of the animal? And if so, to what extent? And are they able to impact the animals? These these are all sort of unanswered questions. Uh, Fibers, I think, are are really exciting. Textile fibers from synthetic clothing is something that we find essentially in every niche on the planet. They contaminate everything. And we really don't have a good idea of what they're doing. We know that they're that they're there. We know that we can find them in almost any sample we take. We don't have a lot of studies showing the impacts of the fibers. So that's a, another route. And, and the chemicals that are in textiles is something else we can talk about. So there's still a lot of unanswered questions. And that's what's kind of fun about doing research. Like you're, you're able to find these unanswered questions and then, and then try to find the answers. Well, I'm kind of afraid to ask you, I guess, each of these things you talk about, but I contemplate an animal eating them or a fish. I'm like, oh, God, it's... It's not going to be good because I just imagine that these things will never break down inside them and clog them up and ugh, cause all kinds of problems to their physiology. But you know, let's let's talk about fibers. I mean, what's the average length and thickness of a fiber that would be ingested, and what happens to them? Yeah, that's so. That's another uh, that's another question. How long is a string? Uh, a fiber. So uh, there there are like technical definitions in uh, the textile industry. I think that you use different terms for. For describing their their materials than maybe we would in the ecotoxicology field, but a fiber is it's a diameter versus length discussion. So a few microns across and then and then longer, maybe 50, 100, 200, 300 microns long. 
So it depends on, it depends on, right? right? And, and if they're in the, the gut of a fish, so this is another discussion that we're having. If they're, uh, what's the gut retention time? Can they be excreted if an animal eats them? Do they just pass through the gut and are they excreted again? And over what time period is that retention time affecting their potential to leach chemicals or not? or to have an impact on the animals? And then at what point will these plastics start to cross from the inside of the gut to the inside of the animal? So, so when, when you, can they cross the epithelial barrier and how? Well, have you, um, you know, have you cut open fish that have been fished, you know, to look from, at where the plastics are inside them or, you know? Yeah, yeah. And we do this in the lab too. We can feed, we can feed fish with different materials or expose them in different ways and, um, and, and look for, how long the plastics are in the gut and so on. But, but it seems like on the, on the microplastic scale, not the nanoplastic scale, but the upper microplastic scale, that these particles are, are likely staying within the gut and then being excreted. So what we're trying to do now in the lab is try to understand when they can cross that barrier, when they can move from the, the gut to the other side. So like be taken up into the animal. And, and then hopefully we'll start to try to understand how that happens. Like, how are they moving across these barriers? So our, our guts are made to be a barrier between inside and outside of the body and to regulate movement of, of like different molecules, food, nutrition, water, different salt ions across these layers. And they're highly regulated processes. They're also meant to keep out pathogens and, and other things like particles that are non-nutritious. But if the plastics are coming in, how are they doing that? We have some ideas well, there, but we haven't answered all the questions yet. Well, yeah. What are some of the answers? What are some of the trends? Um, in can you make a general statement? In general, a lot of plastics are perceived as so foreign that they're not digested. They are passed through. If, if morphologically they can be, or like, what's the fate of them? So on the on the smaller size scale, nano size scale, they can cross the epithelial barrier, and and the small micron scale, they seem to be able to too. So so there's a few different ways to do this. One is to to open up a fish and take a sample from its liver, its kidneys, its its muscles, and look for plastics. And that's a, a, not a very easy process because we're looking for something very small in a complex matrix. But there are methodologies for doing this, for, for extracting the plastics from biological matrices and then trying to identify the particles that we might find there. And there, 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 there are some studies published showing that they have found plastics in different tissues in fish. This is also a process where you need to be really careful not to contaminate what you're working with because, because we have plastic pretty much all around us and it's really difficult to work without contaminating. So it's important to really have these blank samples. The fibers that I talked about earlier are in the air that we breathe. So they're, they're in our labs too. So we have to work in as clean a space as possible and make sure we're not contaminating our samples. But, but the other way that we're trying to do that here is looking at what we call ex vivo samples. So we're working with live tissue outside of the animals and trying to follow particles as they're crossing across them. So we have some kind of uh, neat techniques that we're using that we can... I'm sure industry, I'm sure industry, if they find out and they must know or insinuate, you know, if, uh, if there's contamination possible, then <laughs> yeah. if there's so anything to, be... to say, oh, it's, it's that, it's not us, you know? We need to be really careful about that, but I think I think researchers in general are. And if you can show your blanks and how you're working, then then it makes the results more believable. So definitely, we're we're getting to a point where we're able to show these sorts of things are happening. And uh, the the industry, I don't, the plastic industry, I don't think is doing this kind of research. They're not looking at this. This is not really what their what their purpose and their aim is. 
But a lot of the discussions about microplastics are about uh, food contamination for humans. And, and there are a lot of questions, at least in the general public and much politicians and, and scientists alike, do they pose a risk? And as a fish biologist, when people ask me this question, I'll say, well, okay, for, for fish in, in a lot of societies, especially where you and I live, we usually don't eat the gut of the fish. We clean the fish and eat the muscle if we eat the fish. And, and most of the studies identifying plastics in fish are done in the gut. So there's a bit of a disconnect there. That's, that's not true of something like a shellfish or like a, a mussel or an oyster where you eat the whole animal. So there you might be eating the plastics that the animal also has consumed. But this, this oh, idea okay. of plastics entering into the fish and where they're ending up and what size class and how much, and they're still unanswered questions. So for fish, like you said, uh, this stuff will, will essentially affect the gut more. Have you, can you test? <laughs> maybe. Okay, maybe, maybe. Can can you test the uh, you know I guess the other fleshy parts of a fish, you know the muscles, etc. Um, would you be able to find nanoplastics if uh, if they were there? Like how tough are they to find? Nanoplastics are really hard to find because we don't have the technology really to do that in particle form. So it's possible to find the the polymers through different techniques, but the, to find the particles and visualize them on that scale is, we're, we're not really there yet. So it, so those are more difficult to work with in these questions. Nanoplastics have been used a lot in laboratory studies and in, in trying to look at how they move through organisms if they're ingested and, and this sort of thing, but they have not been as well studied in the environment. Part of the reason why we use them in the lab is because they they're it, it's possible to buy commercially produced spherical nanoplastics that are dyed with fluorescent dyes, which makes them very convenient to use in the laboratory because we can see them. So we can, okay. we can see them viewing, uh, viewing them through fluorescent microscopes. So we can see if, if an invertebrate, like a water flea or something eats these particles, we can see them in the gut of the animal. And, and we can use them in cells when we're growing and in vitro systems, we can see the plastics in the cells. So this is really convenient and that this is, they're commercially available, easy to buy, easy to use, easy to see. So there's been quite a lot of laboratory studies feeding these particles to different kinds of animals and measuring impacts. But these particles... Well, what's the result of, of that kind of stuff? What's, you know, feeding fish, it's horrible, but feeding fish, these plastics of various sizes and the constituencies, like what, what happens to them? Is there any uh, feedback so far? What's up? Yeah, what's the... so there's been studies done on, on fish and a number of different invertebrate animals showing that when they're fed high levels of plastics, you can see effects on growth, on reproduction, on their hormone systems that can be impacted on their metabolism, their fat levels, and so on. So, so this is definitely something that has been shown, but to take that and try to understand it, to contextualize it is, is the next step. So these plastics don't look like the plastics that you'll find in the environment. They're not the same size, shape, or polymer. They don't have the same chemical load. And they're also fed to the animals at levels that don't represent the concentrations you find in the environment. So you might have something like nutrition dilution occurring here, where you're just really diluting out their food. That might be one, one of the things that we're doing in these experiments. So, so newer studies have started taking care to include what I would call particle controls, that you have some other particle in your study that's, that's having the same kind of dilution effect and maybe particle effect to account for that aspect of the plastic materials. So that might be something like clay or sand or, or some other like naturally occurring particle that is non-plastic. What do you mean dilution effect? Say. What do you mean that, that 
it preferentially eats this instead of food or it eats this that it yeah, can't so eat food? They, if they eat a lot of plastic, they eat less food, essentially. And, and there, are, there have been studies showing that some animals will preferentially consume plastics. And, and that is thought to be based on a biofilm that might be growing on the plastic. So they smell like food. So there's, there's this sort of interaction when an organism is eating, when it's choosing what it's going to consume. So that might be a factor there. But even if, we're, if I'm designing experiments with fish, I might, I might take uh, food and put it into, uh, like load it with plastics. So some fish I might be feeding with like artemia. It's a small brine shrimp, it's called. And I can feed those with plastics, then feed those to my, to my fish. So then the fish is eating like food with plastic in it. And maybe they'll become have this false satiation is something that people have talked about that they're not consuming as much food based on the fact that their guts are filled with something else. So there's, there's this aspect that you have to sort of control for in your experiments that we're not, that we're not looking at artifacts that we're looking at true effects. Well, what jumps out at you, the persistence of plastics in fish, uh, the, the degree to which it affects them, you know, physiologically, uh, like what's, what jumps out from this research so far? So I think we can start to say that at the concentrations of plastics that we find in the environment with the chemicals that we have on them, that plastics are probably, or microplastics are probably not a very big source of chemicals for fish in the environment. And, and like we've done some studies in my group on rainbow trout, which is a fish that can live in turbid environments in, in strivers, sorry, streams or rivers or coastal areas that have a lot of particles in the water. And, and they don't seem to be very affected by microplastics in their gut. And that might be because they're adapted to living in a particle rich environment. If you were to take a fish from an environment which has water that with a lot less particles in it, maybe you might see a different effect. I don't really know that, but I'm posing that might be might be something that some animals can um, handle a particle exposure. And the chemicals in the environment that we're finding on plastics, we also find in, in other particles. We find them in organic matter. We find them in microbes, in diatoms, microalgae, bacteria. They're concentrated up through the food chain. So with a fish in the ocean that's eating microplastics that are contaminated with chemicals will also be exposed to chemicals through a lot of other pathways that maybe are today of more relevance. And that being said, plastic concentrations in the environment are increasing, and we might in the near future have a situation that's different, where plastics are posing a bigger threat or, or a, a greater risk to the animals. But as things look today, they're not the biggest problem. Oh, when you say that, what do you mean? What, what is the biggest problem? Is it that uh, plastics yeah. <laughs> are affecting the, the entire food chain and then they're getting bioaccumulated? Or is yeah, there I think another so, substance? From a plastic perspective, I think they're... That the massive ubiquitous use of plastics in our society is problematic on a lot of different levels and not only from microplastic perspective. So chemical exposure for humans through food packaging, through electronics, through building materials, through indoor upholsteries, all like all of these pathways are leading to exposure for humans and death by a thousand paper cuts. So you can't you can't blame all of this on the microplastics, right? And for a fish swimming in the ocean, that animal is going to be facing other threats besides microplastics, like changing water temperatures, changing pH, changes in, um, in food chains and structures in their ecosystems, uh, overfishing and so on. So there's a lot of other problems that we have that we're, that we're doing a lot of damage to the environment right now. Microplastics is one of them. Chemicals in the environment is another. And there's, uh, we could write a grocery list. So where do you want your research to take you in the near term? Is there, you know, what element of all this uh, 
Well, I guess you said there's two parts. There's the nerdy chemical part, and then there's the uh, the social part. So you feel like there's a lot more proof that's needed in order for social change? Uh, do you feel like, I guess, there's a ton more science needed in order to, uh, well, obviously, I guess, to figure out uh, what's going on with all these substances? Like, where are you oh, yeah. at mentally with all this, and what, what do you think oh, yeah. is the best path forward? So, so yes and no. I think there are a lot of unanswered questions and understanding the risks posed by microplastics. So there we still have a bit more work to do. But when it comes to plastics on a bigger scale, we already are have more evidence of the kind of damage that the, that plastic waste material or, or exposure to chemicals and plastic products is doing. So there I think we maybe have enough information to act. And, and we can, um, and, and also looking at... Uh, extraction processes and, and waste production on this level. So there, there, there's definitely enough evidence to act. So on the one hand, when I'm working with my fish in the lab and um, we're doing these sorts of ecotox experiments and trying to understand what the particles are doing and how they're affecting the immune system or the hormone system or epithelial tissues, like that's, that's exciting work. And that, that will feed into dialogues about the kinds of risks that microplastics are posing. But on the other hand, working with societal change, like what, what kind of information do we need to drive change? And to be honest, I don't think my research is what will be driving change on a societal level because most people won't read my papers and understand them and politicians won't read them and understand them. So we need to sort of boil it down to something that is that is relevant and, and easily digestible and understandable and try to feed that into decision-making processes or trying to help people understand complex systems there, there, there's a lot of different ways we can start addressing these questions and how we do this on a large scale. How do we get large masses of people, populations spread across the globe to act in a collective manner to sort of make changes to how we live our lives, the decisions we make, what sort of products we allow on our markets and how we handle them. Like, how, how do we do that? So this is a, another um, part of my research that I'm doing together in these, these big interdisciplinary groups. That's really interesting. Is there a Pareto of the, the worst stuff out there in the environment, you know, for either life or uh, environment itself in terms of plastics? So, yeah, some types of polymers have been shown to be uh, more harmful in, in laboratory experiments. So, that, so that's polystyrene and PVC, which are thought to be, um, have some endocrine activities so or hormone disruptive abilities on um, when they're on the monomers or oligomers maybe, and the, the products that contain things like phthalates or flame retardants that can lead to an increased exposure can also be problematic. So some, it seems like some polymers and plastics are a bit more harmful than others and definitely lists of chemicals that are more harmful than others. Okay. Yeah. So I would, I would argue for reducing the, the numbers of, of complex materials on the market that would make it easier to handle what we're working with. And, and even in waste streams and recycling, like reducing complexity, reducing the number of chemicals we're using. Those are, that would be a good start. Mm. Well, very good. Uh, Bethany, what's the best place for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? Uh, at the University of Gothenburg. In, uh, there's, I have a homepage there listing some of my projects and with links to other information. And then I have, I do have a Twitter page and I don't remember my handle right now. I don't use it enough apparently. Yeah, but I think if you find, if you, if you Google my name, you'll find me and my papers and I've done uh, some, uh, some public speaking. There's some YouTube videos and things like this that people want to know more. Okay. Well, very good. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. If you like this podcast, 
please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.